Hello, I'm Byron Reese with Kickohm. From ultra-low power devices using microcontrollers to complex applications using dedicated machine learning processors, AI runs on ARM. The AI revolution will transform every aspect of our future driven by disruptors like ARM and the bright minds featured on this Voices in AI podcast. Enjoy! This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, our guest is Lorian Pratt, the chief scientist and the co-founder over at Quantelia. They're a software consulting company in the AI field. She's the author of The Decision Intelligence Primer. She holds an AB in computer science from Dartmouth and an MS and PhD in computer science from Rutgers. Welcome to the show, Lorian. Thank you, Byron. Delighted to be here. Very honored. Thank you. So, Lorian, let's start with my favorite question, which is what is artificial intelligence? Artificial intelligence has had an awful lot of definitions over the years. These days, when most people say AI, 90% of the time they mean machine learning, and 90% of the time that machine learning is a neural network underneath. So that's a technology, but, and, and you say most people say that. Is that what, what you mean by it? I try to follow how people tend to communicate and try to track this morphing definition. Um, certainly back in the day, we all had the general AI dream and people were thinking about HAL and the robot apocalypse. But I tend to live um, in, in the applied world. I work with enterprises and small businesses. And usually when they say AI, it's how can I make better use of my data and drive some sort of business value? And, uh, and they've heard of this AI thing and they don't quite know what it is underneath. Well, let me ask a different question then. What do you think of, what is intelligence? What is intelligence? That's a really nebulous thing, isn't it? Well, it's, um, it does not have a consensus definition. So in one sense, you cannot possibly answer it incorrectly. Right. I, I guess, you know, my world, again, is just really practical. Um, what I care about is, is what drives value for people. And, uh, you know, around the world, sometimes intelligence is defined very broadly as the thing that humans do. And sometimes people say a bird is much more intelligent than a human at flying, and a fish is much more intelligent than a human at swimming. So to me, the best way to talk about intelligence is relative to some task that has some value. And uh, it, it's, I think it's, it's kind of dangerous waters when we try to get too far into defining such a nebulous and fluctuating. Well, let me ask one more definition and then I, <laughs> I, I will move on. In what sense do you interpret the word artificial? Do you interpret it as artificial intelligence isn't real intelligence? It just is faking it like artificial turf isn't real grass? Or is it just artificial? Or no, no, it's really intelligent. We just built it. That's why we call it artificial. I think I have to give you another frustrating answer to that, Byron. Um, the human brain does a lot of things. It perceives um, sound, it interprets vision, it thinks through, well, if I go to this college, what will be the outcome? Those are all arguably aspects of intelligence. You know, we jump on a trampoline, we do Olympic dive. There's so many behaviors that we could call intelligence. And the artificial systems are starting to be able to do some of those in useful ways. So that perception task, the ability to look at an image and to say, ah, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a tree, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's intelligent um, in, for that task, just like a human would be able to do that. 
Um, and so certain aspects of what we like to call intelligent in humans, computers can do. Other aspects, absolutely not. So we're, we've got a long path to go. It's not just a yes or a no, but it's actually you know, quite a complex space. So if people say, what is the state of the art? Like, where are we at in mm -hmm. the, since 1955? Right. Uh, you know, where, where are we in, in that journey, 62-year journey? Sure. I, I think we had a lot of false starts. People kept trying to sort of uh, jumpstart and kickstart general intelligence, this idea that we could build Hal from 2001 and that, and that he'd be like, you know, a human child or, or, or a human assistant. And uh, unfortunately, you know, between the fifth generation effort of the 1980s and stuff that happened earlier, we've never really made a lot of progress. It's been kind of like climbing a tree to get to the moon. So, um, you know, over the years, there's been this second thread, you know, not the AIG, artificial general intelligence, but a much more practical thread where people have been trying to figure out how do we build an algorithm that does certain tasks that we usually call intelligent. So the state of the art is we've got really good at what I call one-step machine learning tasks where you look at something and you classify it. So, you know, here's a piece of text. Is it, is it a happy tweet or a sad tweet? Here's a, a job description and, a, um, and uh, information about somebody's resume. Do they match? Do they not? Here's an image. You know, is there a car in this image or not? So these one-step links we're getting very, very good at thanks to the deep learning breakthroughs that Jan LeCun and Jeff Hinton and, and Yoshio and, and all those guys have done over the last few years. So that's the state of the art. Um, and, and, you know, there's really two answers to that. One is what is the state of the art in terms of things that are bringing value to companies where they're like doing the breakthrough things? And then the other is the state of the art from a, a technology point of view. You know, where's kind of the bleeding edge of the coolest new algorithms independent of whether they're actually being useful anywhere? So we sort of have to ask that question in, in two different ways. You know, AI makes headlines anytime it beats a human at a new game, right? Yeah. Um, do you, do you, what do you think will be the next kind of milestone that, that'll kind of make the popular media? AI did blank. AI, AI did blank. Um, AI made a better decision about how to address climate change and sea level rise in this city than the humans could have done alone. Or AI helped people with precision medicine to figure out um, the right medicine for them based on their genetics and their history that wasn't just one size fits all. But I guess both of those are things that you could say are already being done. I mean, they're not, they're not, they're already being done there's not a watershed moment where, aha, Lisa Dole just got beaten by AlphaGo. Yeah. I, I, I mean, we already do some genetic customers. You know, we, we, we can certainly test certain medications against certain genomic markers. We, we can. We can. But I think what's, what hasn't happened is the widespread democratization of AI. You know, Bill Gates said... Um, we're gonna have a computer on every desk. I actually think uh, Granny, who now uses a computer, 
we'll also be building little machine learners um, within a few years from now. And so when I talk about personalized medicine or I talk about a city doing climate change, those are all kind of that general umbrella. It's not going to be just limited to the technologists. It's a technology that's going through this democratization cycle where it becomes available and accessible in a much more widespread way to solve really difficult problems. You know, do you find, the games, I guess, AIs are good at because they're, con they're a confined set of rules and there's an idea of a winner. And, and, right. and therefore, is that a useful way to like walk around your enterprise and look for things that you could apply AI to? In part, I would say necessary but not sufficient, right? So a game, what is that? It's, it's, it's a situation in which somebody's taking an action and then based on that, some competitor, maybe, you know, literally your competitor in a market is taking some counter action, and then you take an action and, and vice versa, right? And so thinking in terms of games is actually a, a direction I see coming down the pike in, in the future where these single link AI systems are going to be integrated more and more with game theory. In fact, I've been talking to some large telecoms about this recently, where, where we are trying to sort of game out the future, right? Um, right now, AI, primarily we're looking at historical data from the past and trying to induce patterns that might be applicable to the future. But that's a different view of the future than actually simulating something, you know, I'll take this action, then you'll take this other action. So yes, uh, the use of games um, has been very, very important in the history of AI. But again, it's, it's not the whole picture. It, it does, as you say, tend to oversimplify things when we think in terms of games. And when I map complex problems, um, it does kind of look like game moves that my customers take, but it is way more complex than, than you know, a simple game of chess or checkers or go. Do you find that the people who come to you, do they say, I had this awesome data, what can AI teach me about it? Or do they say, I have this problem, how do I solve it? I mean, are they, are they looking for a problem or looking for a match to data that they have? Both. Um, by and large, by the time they make it to me, they have a big, massive set of data. Somebody on the team has heard about this AI thing, and they'll come with a set of hypotheses. We think this data might be able to solve problem X or Y or Z. And that's a great question, Byron, because, you know, that is how folks like me get introduced, you know, into, into projects, is, is people have a, a, a vague notion as to how to use it, and it's our job to crisp that up and to do that matching of the technology to the problem so that they can get the best value out of, out of, this, out of this new technology. And do you find that people are realistic in their expectations of where the technology is? Or is it overhyped in the sense that you kind of have to reset some of their expectations? Usually by the time they get to me, because I'm so practical, <laughs> I don't get the folks who, who kind of have these giant artificial, general artificial intelligence goals. I get, I, I, I get the folks who, who are like, I want to build a business and provide a lot of value, and how can I do that? And from their point of view, often I can exceed their expectations, actually, because they think, oh, I got to spend a year cleansing my data because the AI is only as good as the data. Well, it turns out that's not true, and I can tell you why if you want to hear about it. Um, they'll say, oh, you know, I need to have 10 million rows of data because AI only works on large data sets. It turns out that's not necessarily true. So actually, the, the technology, by and large, tends to exceed people's expectations. 
when we think in terms of, oh, and they think, oh, I got, I've been Googling AI and I need to learn all these algorithms and we can't have an AI project until I learn everything. And that's also not true. <laughs> this technology, the inside of the box is like a Ferrari engine, right? But the outside of the box is like a steering wheel and two pedals. It's not hard to use if you don't get caught up in the details of the algorithms. And are you referring to the, to the various frameworks that are out there specifically? Yeah, Tiano, Torch, um, you know, Google stuff, all, uh, TensorFlow, all of those, yes. And how, how do you advise people in terms of evaluating those solutions? It really depends on the problem. Um, if I was to say there's one piece of advice I almost always give is to recognize that most, most of those frameworks are kind of built over the last few years by academics. And so they require a lot of work to get them going. Um, I was getting one going uh, about a year ago and, and it took me like six days. And you know, I'm a smart computer scientist. It took me six days to try to get it working. And even then just to have one deep learning run, it was this giant file and it was really hard to change and it was hard to find the answers. Whereas in contrast, I, I use this package, um, this H2O package and, and the and R front end to it, and I can run deep learning in like one line of code there. So I guess my advice is usually be discerning about the package. Is it built for the PhD audience or is it built um, kind of more for a business user audience? Because there's, there's a lot of differences. There's very, very powerful. I mean, don't get me wrong, TensorFlow and and those, those systems are, are hugely powerful, but often it's power that you don't need and flexibility that you don't need. Um, and, and there's just a tremendous amount of value you can get out of the low-hanging fruit, simple-to-use frameworks. So what are some guiding principles? You said there's that one piece of advice, but what are some other... I'm, I have an enterprise. I've, as, as you say, I've heard of this AI thing. Sure. Um, I'm looking around. What should I be looking for? Well, um, what you're looking for is, is some pattern in your data that would predict something valuable. So, um, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm working with some educational institutions. They want to know, you know, what topics that we offer in our courses help our students, you know, ultimately be successful in terms of being able to land a job. Um, uh, in, in the medical domain, you know, what, what aspects of somebody's medical history would determine which of these, you know, five or six different drug regimens would be the most effective. In stock prices, you know, what data about, you know, securities that we might invest in might tell us whether they're going to go up or down. So do you see that pattern? You've always got like some set of factors on one side and then something that you're trying to predict that if you could predict it well, um, would be valuable on the other side. And that one pattern, okay, if, if your listeners only listen to one thing, that's the outside of the box. It's really simple. It's not that complicated. It's you're just trying to get like one set of data that predicts another set of data and try to figure out, you know, if there would be some value there, um, then, then we want to implement or look into implementing an AI system. So, so that's kind of thing number one that I'd recommend is just for look for that pattern in, in, in your business value, see if you can find a use case or a scenario in which that holds. So to switching gears a bit, you know, you say that we had these early dreams of building a general intelligence. Do you uh, still think we're going to build one sometime? Oh, maybe. I tend to, I, I don't like to get into those conversations because I think they're really distracting. I think we've got so many hard problems, poverty, conflict, 
Um, you know, an AGI because, would sure be helpful with those, wouldn't it? No, see, that's the problem. An AGI, it's it's not aiming in the right direction. It's ultimately going to be really distracting. We need to we need to do the work, right? We need to go up the ladder, and the ladder starts with the single link machine learning that we just talked about, right? You got a pattern, you predict something, and then the next step is you try linking those up. You say you know, well, if I'm going to invest in this feature, if I'm going to have this feature in my new phone, then, you know, let me predict how many people in a particular demographic will buy it. And then the next link is given how many people will buy it, what price can I charge? And the best link is, next link is how much price can I charge? How much money can I make? So, do you, so it's, it's a chain of events that start with some action that you take and ultimately lead to some outcome. And, you know, I'm, solidly convinced from a lot of things I've done over the 30 years I've been in AI that um, we have to go through this phase where we're, we're building these multi-link systems that get from actions to outcomes. And that'll maybe ultimately get us to, you know, what you might call generalized AI, but we're not there yet. <laughs> we're, we're not even very good at the single link systems, let alone multi-link think and understanding feedback loops and complex <coughs> dynamics and unintended consequences and all of the things that start to start to emerge when you start trying to, to simulate the future with multi-link systems. Well, let me answer the, ask the question a different way then. Do you sure. think that an AGI is an evolutionary result of a path we're already on? Like, are we, you know, and we're at 1% and then we'll be at two and then four and then eventually we'll get there? Or is that just like a whole different beast and, you know, you don't kind of just get there gradually. That's a that's an aha kind of technology. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of a philosophical question because even if I got to a full robot, we'd still have this question as to whether it was, you know, really conscious or intelligent. Um, you know, what, what I really think is important is, is turn AI in its head, intelligence augmentation. What's definitely going to happen um, is is that humans are going to be working alongside intelligent systems that, you know, what was once a pencil and then was a calculator now is a computer is, it, is next going to be an AI. And just like computers have really superpowered our ability to write a document or have this, this uh, podcast, right? They're going to start also supercharging our ability to think through complex situations. And it's going to be a side-by-side -side partnership for, for the foreseeable future and perhaps indefinitely. So there's a fair amount of fear uh, in terms of what AI is going and autom automation in general will do to jobs. And, and sure. just to set up the question, you know, there's often three different narratives. One is that uh, we're, we're about to enter this period where we're going to have some portion of the population that is not able to uh, add economic value and they'll be kind of a permanent Great Depression. And then another view says, no, no, it's far different than that. Every single thing a person can do, we're going to build technology to do. And then there's a third view that says, no, no, this is no different than any other transformative technology. People take it and use it to grow their own productivity. And, and you know, every, everybody, everybody goes up a notch. What right. do you think, or, or a fourth choice, what, how do you see AI's well, impact? I I think multiple things are going to happen. We're definitely seeing disruption in certain fields that, that AI is now able to do, but is it a different disruption than the introduction of the cotton gin or the automobile or any other 
technology disruption nah it's just got this kind of overlay of like the robot apocalypse that makes it a little sexier to talk about but uh you know to me it's it's the same evolution we've always been going through as we build better and better tools to assist us with things and i'm not saying that's not painful and i'm not saying that won't have displacement but it's not going to be a qualitatively different sort of shift in employment than we've seen before i mean people have been predicting you know the end of employment because of automation you know for decades and decades um future shock right alvin toffler said that in the 60s and you know ai is no different i think the other thing to say is is you know we get into this hype cycle because the vendors want you as a journalist to to think it's all really cool and and then and then the journalists write about it and then there's more and more vendors and and we get really really hyped about this and i think it's important to realize that we really are just in one link ai right now in, in terms of what's widespread and what's implemented and what's useful and where you know the hard implementation problems have been solved um so you know i would sort of tone down that side of things and from a job point of view that means we're not going to like suddenly see this giant shift in in jobs and automation um, I, in fact, I think AI is going to create um, many jobs. I, I wouldn't say as many as we'll lose, but I think there is a big opportunity for those fields. You know, I, I hear about coal miners these days being retrained um, in IT. Turns out um, a lot of them seem to be really good. I'd love to, I'd love to train, you know, those other, you know, those populations in, in how, to, how to be, you know, data scientists and machine learning people. Um, I think there's a great opportunity there. Is there a shortage of talent in the field? Absolutely, um, but it's not too hard to solve. The shortage of talent only comes when you think everybody has to understand these really complex PhD level frameworks. As the technology gets democratized, the ability to address the shortage of talent will become much, much easier. And so we're seeing one-click machine learning systems coming out. We're seeing things like um, the, the AI labs that are coming out of places like Microsoft and Amazon. So, so the technology is becoming something that lots of people can learn as opposed to requiring this very esoteric, you know, three computer science degrees like I have. Um, and so I think we're going to start to see a, um, a decrease in that shortage in the near future. So... All of the AI winters that happened in the past were all preceded by hype followed by unmet expectations. Do you right. think we're going to have another AI winter? Um, I think we'll have an AI fall, but it won't yeah. be a winter. And here's why. We're seeing a level of substantive use cases for AI being deployed, especially in the enterprise, um, you know, widespread large businesses at a level that never happened before. I was just talking to a guy earlier about the last AI hype cycle in the 80s where VLSI computer design by AI was like this giant thing in the fifth generation and the Japanese and, and people were putting you know, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars into these companies and there was never any substance. It never had, there was no there there, right? Nobody ever had deployed systems. Uh, AI and law, same thing. You know, there's been this AI and law effort for years and years and years and it really never produced any commercial systems for like a decade. And now we're starting to see, you know, some, some commercial solidity there. So in terms of that Gartner, uh, you know, hype cycle, we're, we're entering the mass majority, but we are still seeing some hype. So there'll be a correction. 
And we'll probably get to where we can't say AI anymore and we'll have to come up with some new name that we're allowed to say, right? Because for years you couldn't say AI, you had to say data mining, <laughs> right? And then I had to call myself an analytics consultant and now it's kind of cool, I can call myself an AI person again. Um, so the language will change, but it's not gonna be the, the frozen winter that we saw before. I wonder what term we'll replace it with. I mean, I hear people who avoid it are saying, are using cognitive systems and all of that, but it sounds just like kind of synonym substitution. <laughs> it is, and that's how it always goes. I'm evangelizing multi-link machine learning right now. I'm also testing decision intelligence. Um, it's kind of fun to be at the vanguard where you can, as you're inventing the new things, you get to name them, right? and you get to try, to try to make everybody use that terminology. It's in flux right now. There was a time when email, we didn't call it email, right? It was computer mail. <laughs> so I don't know, it hasn't started to crystallize yet. It's still in you know, the 20 different new terminologies. You know, there's a, there's a term for when eventually it will become just mail and the other will be, you know, snail mail. Uh, wow. Where, yeah, yeah, I know it happens a lot, like canned, <laughs> Uh, corn on the cob, that used to just be corn, and then canned corn came along, so now we say corn on the cob, or uh. cloth diapers. Well, you know, they, they, that's what, anyway, that's, uh, it happens. So. Um, so walk me through some of the misconceptions that you come across in, in kind of your day-to-day. -day. Sure, sure. I think the, the biggest mistake that I see is people get lost in algorithms or lost in data. So um, lost in algorithms, you know, let's say, let's say you're listening to this and you say, oh, I'd like to be interested in AI. If you go out and you Google AI, um, the analogy I think is it's like, imagine we're the auto industry and for the last 30 years, the only people in the auto industry have been inventing new kinds of engines. Right? So you're going to see the Wankel engine and the four-cylinder engine. You're going to read about the carburetors. And it's all been about the technology, right? And guess what? We don't need 500 different kinds of engines, right? So if you go out and Google it, you're going to be totally lost in like, you know, hundreds of like frameworks and engines and stuff. And so the big misconception is that you somehow have to master engine building in order to drive the car, right? And you don't, you don't have to. But yet all the, you know, the noise out there, I mean, it's not noise, it's, it's really great research. But from your point of view, who actually want to use it for something valuable, it is kind of noise. So, I mean, so I think one of the biggest mistakes people get into is they create a much higher barrier. They think you have to learn all this stuff in order to drive a car, um, which is not the case. It's actually fairly simple technology to use. And, and so, you know, you need to talk to people like me who are kind of practitioners, right? Or, or as you Google, you know, really, really have a really discerning eye for the project that worked and what the business value was, you know, and, and you know, that applied side of things as opposed to the algorithm design. So that's, tell, that's one of them. Okay. Tell me some, like you say you're a practical person. Yeah. Tell me, uh, you know, without naming company names or anything, tell me some projects that, that you worked on and, how you looked at it and how you approached it and what was the outcome like just walk me through a few use cases so i'll rattle through a few of them and you can tell me which one to talk about <laughs> which one you think is the coolest um uh hair morphological hair comparison for the colorado bureau of investigation um hazardous waste buried waste detection for the department of energy 
DNA pattern recognition for the human genome project, um, stock price prediction, um, medical precision medicine prediction. It's the coolest field. You get to do so much interesting work and work with great well, experts. Let's start with, uh, with the, uh, the hair one. Sure. Sure. So this was actually a few years back. It was during the OJ trials. And uh, the question is, you go out to a crime scene and there's hairs and fibers that they pick up, you know, the CSI guys, right? And then you also have hairs from your suspect. So you've got these two hairs, one from the crime scene, one from your suspect. And if they match, that's going to be some evidence that your um, that your guy was at the scene, right? So how do you go about doing that? Well, you take a micro photograph of the two of them, and then the human eye is pretty good at sort of looking at the two hairs and seeing if they match. We actually use a microscope that that, that shows us both at the same time, but AI can take it a step further. So just like AI is the uh, is kind of the, the go-to technology for breast cancer prediction and, and pap smear analysis and all of this kind of micro photography stuff. Uh, this project that I was on uh, used AI to recognize, like, are these two hairs, do they come from the same guy or not? It's a pretty neat project. And so that was in the 90s. Yeah, it was a while so, back. So, and that would have been using techniques we still have today or using... Older, older techniques? Um, both, actually. Um, that was a backpropagation neural network, and I'm not allowed to say backpropagation, nor am I really allowed to say neural network, but the hidden secret is that all the great AI stuff still use backpropagation-like neural networks. <laughs> so it was the foundations of what we do today. Today, uh, we still use neural nets. They're the main machine learning algorithm, but they're deeper. They have more and more layers of artificial neurons, we still learn, we still change the weights, the simulated synapses on the networks, but we have a more sophisticated algorithm that does that. So foundationally, it's really the same thing. It hasn't changed that much in so many years. Uh, we're still artificial neural network centric in, in most of AI today. And so now let's go to hazardous waste. Sure, so this was for the Department of Energy. Again, it was an imaging project, but here, the question is, you've got these buried drums of leaking chemical nerve gas that have been dumped into these Superfund sites, and it was really carelessly done. I mean, literally trenches were dug, and stuff was like, you know, radioactive stuff was just dumped in them. And after a few years, folks realized that wasn't so smart. And so then they, they took those sites, and they passed these pretty cool um, sensors over them like gravitometers that detect detected micro fluctuations in gravity and ground penetrating radar and other techniques that could sense what was underground originally developed for the oil industry actually to find to find buried um, um, energy deposits and uh, you try to characterize where where those things are and, and where the where the neural net was good was at combining all those sensors from multiple um, multiple modalities into a, into a picture that was better than any one of the sensors. And what technologies did that use? Neural nets. Same thing, backpropagation. So, would you say that most of, I mean, at, at the beginning, you made some references to some people and some recent breakthroughs, but would you say that most of our techniques are things we've known about, you know, since the 60s, we just didn't have computer horsepower to do it? Would that be fair to say or, or not? 
It's both. It's the rocket engines plus plus the rocket fuel, right? So it's it's uh, it was both a lack of horsepower. I remember as a graduate student, I used to take over all the faculty's computers at night when there was no security. I'd run my neural net training on 40 different machines and then have them all, you know, RPC the data back to my machine. Um, so I had enough horsepower back then. Um, what we were missing was, was the, the modern deep learning algorithms as well um, that, that allowed us to get better performing systems out of, out of that data and out of those high performance compute environments. And now, what about the Human Genome Project? Tell me about that project. Um, that was uh, looking at um, DNA patterns and trying to identify something called a ribosomal binding site. If you saw that Star Trek episode where everybody turns into a lizard, <laughs> there's these uh, parts of your DNA that, that we don't really know what they do uh, between the, the parts that express themselves. And this was a, a project um, uh, nicely funded um, by a couple of funding agencies to to detect these um, uh, these locations on a DNA strand. Was that the one where everybody essentially accelerated their evolution and Picard yeah. was some some kind of a nervous chimp of some kind and uh, yeah. somebody else was a salamander? Yes, that's and, right. You Remember, it's Deanna Troy like turned into a salamander, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she was expressing the, the introns, the stuff that was between the, the currently expressed genome. And uh, this was a project to kind of find the boundaries between the expressed and the unexpressed parts. Which was and a pretty neat then, science project, right? Exactly. Um, and tell me about the precision medicine one. That would, um, was that a recent one? Yeah, so yeah, the first three were kind of older. Um, this is a project I'm doing on, I'm chief scientist also at ehealthanalytics.net. And they've taken, um, it turns out that, you know, if you do a traditional medical trial, um, it's very backward facing and you often have very homogenous um, data. And in, in contrast, if we've got a lot of medical devices that are spitting out, like I'm wearing my Fitbit right now and it's got data about me and, and you know, we have more DNA information that we can actually do better than traditional medical trials. So, so that was a project I did for those guys. Uh, more recently, we're, we're predicting uh, failure in medical devices. Um, and so that's not as much precision medicine as precision analysis of, of medical devices so that we can uh, catch them in the field before, before they fail. And that's a, obviously a really important thing to be able to do. And so you've been at this for, you say, three decades. Three decades, yeah, since about 80 84, I built like my first neural net. And then I assume, would you say that, that your, your job has changed over that time or has it in a way not that you still look at the data, look at the approach, figure out what question you're asking and figure out how to get an answer? From that point of view, it's really been the same. Um, I think what has changed is once I build the neural net, uh, before the accuracies and the false positives and false negatives were kind of, eh, you know, they weren't really exciting results. And now, um, you know, we see Microsoft, you know, a, a couple of years ago uh, using neural network transfer, which was my big algorithm invention to, um, to, to, to beat humans at visual pattern recognition. And so the error rates just with the deep, new deep learning algorithms have, have just gone, you know, plummeted, as I'm sure your other interviewers have told you about. 
And so, but, but the process has been really the same. And, you know, I'll tell you what's surprising. Um, you'd think that things would have changed a lot, but there just hasn't been a lot of people who drive the cars, right? There's still been, up until very recently, this field has really been dominated by people who build the engines. And so we're just on the cusp of, of you know, and I look at SAP as a great example of this. SAP is coming out with this big new Leonardo launch of its machine learning platform. And they're not trying to build new algorithms, right? SAP is partnering with Google and NVIDIA. And, and what they recognize is where the next big innovation is, is in the ability of connecting the algorithms to the applied problems and just churning out one use case after another that drives value for their customers. And I would have liked to have seen us progress further along those lines over the last few years. But, um, you know, I guess just the performance wasn't there and the interest wasn't there. But, you know, that's what I'm excited about this current, um, this current you know, period of excitement in AI is that we'll finally start to have a bunch of people who drive the car, right? Who use this technology in valuable ways to get from here to there to predict stock prices, to match people to the perfect job is another project that I'm doing, um, you know, for, for HR, human resources, um, you know, all these very practical things that have so much value. Um, but yeah, it hasn't, hasn't really changed that much, but, but I hope it does. I hope we get better at software engineering for AI because that's really what's just starting right now. So you maybe will, will become more of a car driver to use your analogy in the future. You'll be able to, even somebody as, you know, as, as steeped in it as you, it sounds like you would prefer to use higher level, higher level tools that uh, are just that much easier to use. Yeah, and, and, and the reason is because we have plenty of, of algorithms. <laughs> you know, we're totally saturated with new algorithms. And the big desperate need that everybody needs is, is again, to democratize this and to make it useful and to drive business value to say, you know, a friend of mine who just finished an AI project, he said on a $10 million project, we just upped our revenues by 18% from this AI thing, right? And that's typical and that's huge, right? But yet everybody was doing it for the very first time and he's at a fairly large company. So that's where the big excitement is. I mean, I know it's not as sexy as, you know, artificial general intelligence, but it's really important to the human race. And so that's why I keep coming back to it. How do you think, you, you know, you, you made a passing reference to image recognition and the, the leap forward mm. we have there. How do you think it is that people do such a good job I mean, is it just all transfer learning after a while, we just sort of get used to it? Or do you think people do it in a different way than, than we got machines to do it? In, in computer vision, there was a, um, a paper that came out last year um, that Jan LeCun was sending around that said that somebody was looking at, you know, the structure of the deep learning vision networks and had found this really strong analog to the multiple layers. What is it, the lateral geniculate nucleus? I don't, I'm not a human vision person, but there's these structures in the human vision system that are very, very analogous. Um, so it's like this uh, convergent evolution that the computers converge to the same way of, of recognizing images that, that it turns out the human brain does things. And it, 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 it's, you know, were we totally inspired by the human brain? Yes, to some extent. I mean, back in the day when we'd go to the NIPS conference, 
um, half the people there were, were you know, in, in neurophysiology and half of us were computer modelers, more applied people. And so there was a tremendous amount of interplay between those two sides. But, you know, more recently, folks have just tried to get computers to see things for self-driving cars and stuff. And, and we keep, you know, heading back to things that sort of look like the human vision system. And I, I think that's pretty interesting. You know, I, I think the early optimism from in AI, you know, the, the Dartmouth project, you know, that, that thought right. they could do a bunch of stuff if they worked really hard for one summer. <laughs> stemmed from an idea. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Stemmed yeah. from um, a, a hope that just like in physics, you had a few laws that explain everything and in electronics and in magnetism, it's just a few laws that oh. intelligence would just be three or four simple laws that will figure it out and, and it'll be, you know, that, that's, that's all it's going to be. And I guess we've right. given up on that or have we, and we, we're essentially brute forcing our way to everything, right? Yeah, that, that it's sort of this emergent property, right? Like Conway's game of life has these very complex emergent epiphenomena from just a few simple rules. I actually, I haven't given up on that. I just think we don't quite have the substrate right yet. And again, I keep going back to single link learning versus multi-link. I think when we start to build multi-link systems that have complex dynamics that end up doing forward in time simulation using piecewise backward machine learning based on historical data, I think we are going to see a bit of an explosion and start to see kind of this emergence happen. That's the optimistic, non-practical side of me. I just think we've been focusing so much on certain low-hanging fruit problems, right? Image recognition, because we had these great successes in medicine. Even with the old algorithms, they were just so great at like cancer recognition and images. Um, and then, and then Google was so smart with advertising and then Netflix with, you know, the movies. But if you look at those successful use cases, there's only like a dozen of them that have been super successful. And we've been really, really focused on these use cases that, you know, that fit our hammer. And so we've been looking at nails, right? <laughs> because that's, you know, the technology that we had. But I think you know, multi-link systems will make a big difference going forward. And when we do that, I think we might start to see this kind of explosion in what the systems can do. I'm still an optimist there. Uh, there are those who think we really will have an explosion, literally, from it all. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, like the singularitists. <laughs> yep. You're right. It's interesting that there are people, you know, high-profile individuals of unquestionable intelligence who believe we uh, are at the cusp of building something transformative. Where, where do you think they are? Well, I can really only speak to my own experience. Um, I think there, you know, there's this hype thing, right? All the, all the car companies want to show that they're still relevant. So they hype the self-driving cars. <laughs> and, you know, of course, we're not taking security and other things into account. And, um, and, you know, we all kind of want to get jumping on that bandwagon. But, you know, my experience is just very plebeian, right? You just got to do the work. You got to roll up your sleeves. You got to condition your data. You got to go around the data science loop. 
and then um, and then and then you need to go forward. And I, I think people are really caught up in this prediction task. This like, what can we predict? What will the AI tell us? What can we learn from the AI? And I think we're all caught up in the wrong question. That's not the question. The question is, what can we do? Right? What actions will we take that lead to which outcomes we care about? Right? So, you know, what should we do in this country that's struggling in conflict to avoid the unintended consequences? What, what should we teach these students so that they, you know, have a good career? What actions can we take to mitigate against climate, you know, sea level rise in our, in our city? And nobody's thinking in terms of actions that lead to outcomes. They're thinking of data that leads to predictions. And again, I think this comes from the very academic history of AI, right? Where it was all about the idea factory and what, what can we conclude from this? And yeah, it's great. That's part of it, you know, being able to say, here's this image, here's, you know, here, here's what we're looking at. But but to really be valuable for something, it can't be just recognizing an image. It has to be take some action that leads to some outcome. And I think that's what's been missing. And that's what's coming next. Well, that sounds like a great place to end our conversation. Excellent. Um, I want to thank you so much. You, you just gave us such a, uh, a good overview of what we can do today and how to go about doing it. And I thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Byron. Appreciate the time. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you want to learn more about the latest innovations in artificial intelligence and machine learning, we suggest you visit our friends at ARM at arm.com.